the Future Proof Podcast from News Talk. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Hashtag believe in science. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. In this week's episode, uh, Dr. Claire McCoy from the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland takes us through this paper that we heard about two weeks ago that definitively proves that Epstein-Barr virus is responsible for multiple sclerosis. Um, It is one of the primary factors. There's other things that that need to to go on. There are genetic factors and so on. But if you don't have Epstein-Barr, you will not get MS. Why is that so important? We'll find out in a few minutes' time. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining us is science broadcaster and science communicator Phil Smith and Dr. Lara Duncan. You're both very welcome. Our first story. Lara, it has to do with um, an extraordinary... um, I mean, experiment, I suppose is the word for it, where a frog has regrown amputated legs after drug treatment. Tell me about this. Yeah, this is amazing. It came from Tufts University in Massachusetts, and it was published um, only recently in the the journal Science Advances. And um, what they've looked at is potential limb regeneration. Limbs are very complex. I mean, everything biologically is very complex. But in terms of the cellular level, a limb has to have obviously skin, it has to have bone, it has to have nerves, it has to have muscles, it has to have blood vessels. So as you can imagine, it's not an easy thing to just regenerate this. And what they did with these frogs in this experiment is they anesthetized them and amputated their legs. And they amputated them halfway down what would be the equivalent of our shin bone. Um, and then they put for, for some of the frogs and they obviously had controls as well, what they call a little biodome. So it's a silicon cap that they sewed around the, the little stump of the leg. And that has um, it had five different uh, chemicals in it. And these chemicals are to do things like stop scarring. So stops collagen production and encourage nerve growth, encourage vessel growth. And they only kept this little silicon cap on for 24 hours. And then they took it off. Um, and they also did um, some mice that had the silicone cap without the chemicals in it. And they looked at them over the next 18 months. And it's absolutely fascinating. Now, it needs to be said that um, in the larval stages, so as tadpoles, these frogs can regrow limbs that have been cut off. So not as adult frogs, but they do regrow from the stump anyway. Okay, so I don't feel they're the exact equivalent of a mammal, but they can't regrow a functioning leg. And what they found when they treated them with these chemicals is they regrew a leg. Tenses are very difficult. Uh, They regrew a leg. It grew all the way down to the foot. It even grew toes. Some of the bone regrew. It had mobility, so it was able to use it for swimming. And it had nerves. It was able to regrow nerves, which is absolutely fascinating because nerves are so complex. But the, the frog had sensation in this leg. You could touch it and it could feel it. And it's amazing. I mean, I think we should tweet the photo of what the the resulting limb looked like, but it is just so fascinating. Um, Now, obviously, this needs to be able to transfer into mammals, and I don't think it's going to be quite as simple, but it's just utilizing the innate ability of the body to go back to an almost embryonic state and start again from scratch and discovering the chemicals that do it is, is groundbreaking. Now, I'm not a herpetologist. I'm not even sure if I'm if that's the right word, but um, <laughs> but like a uh, isn't a frog like similarish to a salamander in some ways, or like more similar to a salamander than it might be to a human? I mean, is this not sort of 
part frog nature anyway? I mean, is this that big a deal? Yeah, no. So so it is in many ways. And the, and the reason you're saying salamanders is because salamanders can regrow full limbs, as can a lot of other creatures. So, for instance, starfish can, um, you know, flatworms, all sorts of things can, can regrow limbs. Um, but frogs can't regrow a full and functional limb. So they will regrow essentially a spike. So if you cut the limb at that, that equivalent to the shin bone, it will grow... Basically, all it is is a spike. So there'll be no bone, there'll be no functioning toes, there'll be no mobility. But yes, it wouldn't It wouldn't be like a human. Whereas if you cut off, obviously, a human leg, we do not regrow a spike. Um, so it's it's certainly not the exact equivalent. And I think this needs to be proven in mammals that I think they're, they're kind of logically taking it maybe a step too far, saying, you know, this animal has the regenerative capacity of a mammal. It, it doesn't. We don't regrow spikes like they do. But I mean, if you look at the photos and the difference, it is phenomenal. This these frogs have feet, they have toes, they can swim, they can feel. It's amazing. Is the idea that potentially, I mean, obviously they seem to be pointing that direction. The idea is that potentially you could, if someone had their legs severed, that they might be able, before scar tissue forms, they might be able to sort of encourage a regrowth of that um, that leg one day? Absolutely. I think that the, really? the point in humans is that, um, and mammals, is that we scar. So in order to stop infection and to stop us essentially dying, we scar. Um, and scarring stops anything else from happening after that. And we have the ability within our DNA to do everything that we did as a tiny baby. So it's rediscovering that. And that is the hope, you know, I mean, you could stop cardiac tissue from scarring after a heart attack. You could regrow. Well, I mean, the liver actually already regrows. So let's leave the liver out of this. But you could regrow limbs potentially. I mean, it really is amazing. It's not there yet, you know, but it is, I think, phenomenal. And, and you know, maybe spinal injuries, that kind of thing. It's It's amazing technology. All right. Very interesting. Um, our second story uh, has to do with a spooky spinning object in the Milky Way, um, FL. I think the uh, sub-editors went a little bit um, over the top on this. It's just a flashing thing in the sky, right? Yeah, kind of, yeah. From, from you know, tangible limbs being ringoing to something that sounds like ghost hunters in space, although there is a little bit of real science behind this. Published in the latest episode, or latest episode, the latest uh, volume of Nature, Australian scientists say they've discovered an unknown spinning object in the Milky Way. And just like any plumber that comes to fix my washing machine, uh, they claim it's unlike anything they've ever seen before. Uh, <laughs> the object uh, was, under, was discovered by an undergrad student, which is special in its own way to show that like things can actually happen in your, your undergrad. Uh, Tyrone O'Doherty, which surely who surely has uh, Irish connections, was in the Western Australian outback uh, in a region called the Mercian Widefield uh, Array using a telescope and a new technique that they had developed. And what they've seen is a body that has been observed to release a huge burst of radio energy for a full minute every 18.1 minutes. So it, it's this regularity, but it's the amount of energy. It's like that one minute of really release of energy is unheard of before. Because right, because we, we, we have pulsars, right? And, yes. and pulsars also flash this radioactive burst. But it's nothing like as long, usually, right? They're very fast. Yeah, exactly. And and the, the team that's looking at this, Dr. N Natasha Hurley-Walker, they're from University of Curtin, um, and the, the university node of the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research, says that it, it shouldn't be able to do this. It should be impossible. So hmm. the fact that it's appearing and disappearing over four hours uh, during their observation is completely unexpected. And that's where the, the spooky nature of it came from. Now, they've, they've spec 
speculated that they think that it could be a, a neutron star or, or a white dwarf. And neutron stars are, they, they used to be, you know, big, massive stars. They used to be 10 to 25 times the size of our own star. And they've, you know, collapsed and condensed in a really, really heavy, dense material that even like a matchbox size of their material would weigh, you know, hundreds of millions of tons. So you're looking at to trying to see what happens, but they've gone back in their data to see if this happened over a long period of time. And it's it's been there for a while. Natasha Hurley uh, Walker has been asked by uh, students and by newspapers but who came up with this title. Uh, could it be aliens? Is this like a giant lighthouse in the sky kind of going, come on, come on over here? And she said, no, we've looked at it. Uh, it's We've seen that it, it, it's been broadcast over a wide range of uh, frequencies. So that would indicate that it's natural, but we just don't know what it is. But it could be a new form of something. So they are going to look at it <laughs> and it could potentially be anything but we don't know but it's fascinating to see that there's still new stuff in space being discovered yeah absolutely um sort of echoes of uh, dame jocelyn beryl barnell yes. uh, the northern irish scientist who discovered pulsars and there was a big brouhaha at the time when she discovered those where everyone was saying is it aliens and they actually they actually called it the lgm signal didn't they the little green is, yeah. signal um all right um our third story uh, is another medical story um uh, lara and has to do with electric wound dressing this sounds very blade runner yeah <laughs> why specifically blade runner did they do something like that in blade runner well you know it's futuristic and <laughs> That's all you could come up with. I, well, he, people get hurt in it. I mean, they do. You know, they, they presumably do. need some sort of dressings. And if, now it follows through electric. perfectly. So uh, absolutely. So the, it's, the technology isn't new as such. We know that electric fields help increase wound healing. And wound healing is a big problem. A lot of people, like, you know, younger population think of wounds as in you get a cut, we want it to heal. But what is actually the real problem is chronic wounds. So things like leg ulcers, these are the kind of things that actually kill people. And if nothing else, they cause a huge amount of pain and um, a massive financial burden to the healthcare system. So what these scientists have done, um, and again, it's, it's published in this same Science Advances journal, which is a nature journal, um, is they have got a much smaller way of doing the electric field. So you can use a, a large external machine to create an electric field, which does improve wound healing, but it's not exactly practical. You can't go about your regular life. So these scientists have created a dressing. So essentially it's, it's 0.2 millimeters thick. So it's just like a normal plaster and it's got four layers in it. But one of the layers, the layer that attaches to the skin is electrically charged plastic and it produces an electric field and it uses the power, the heat of your skin to produce this electric field. So it doesn't need any external power source as such. And then the next layer is this sort of silicon rubber that molds to the shape of the skin. So keeps it on really, really well and tightly. And then the next layer is almost like a memory foam alloy that, that pushes the two sides of the wound together. And they did this on 50 rats. They cut small one centimeter linear wounds, so a little line, or they, they basically punched out a circular wound in the rats. And what they found was that there was nearly 100% healing after eight days in these circular wounds in the rats. Whereas with the a regular dressing, it was closer to about 75, 80%. And with no dressing at all, it wasn't even 50% wound healing. Um, so it's really interesting and potentially practical and actually utilizable in people and patients. Now, the question is always cost. Um, and they have declined to say what the cost is, but they say it's affordable. Now, if you're Elon Musk, everything is affordable. <laughs> if you're me, it's not so much. So it, that, you know, that's not helpful saying it's affordable. We need to know whether it's actually practical and useful for, for everyday people. 
Well, I mean, if it, if it becomes the new default for plasters, it'll become affordable. It depends on how, you know, if, if the use case is every cut you've ever had will get much better quicker, then it'll become universally, you know, the default. And, and then it'll become extremely, you know, because it's mass produced. So it, it will become you know, cheaper. That does not mean it'll become affordable, but it will become cheaper. Well, right. look, I mean, it, if it's literally used as the default for every plaster, I mean, it will be cheap. Fair, that, that, absolutely that, that, fair. That's, how, that's the nature of economics. Um, I did economics in Leaving Cert, you see. You did. And, Don't give it to uh, my daughter, though, because she puts plasters on absolutely everything. So it would be yeah. a massive waste of resources. Even the dolls get plasters. Oh, um, I think, uh, it, it, look, it, it, it depends on if it, if it really makes, I mean, it sounds like uh, over engineering uh, a problem. But if, Certainly if for it, smaller wounds, but I think yeah. for big chronic wounds, I think this would be amazing if it actually worked to heal them. Because sometimes you stand there and you just look at these poor people and you're tearing your hair out. There's kind of nothing you can do. So so there is a hole there that does need to be filled in terms of, of treatment. All right. Um, our final um, story is about a SpaceX rocket that has gone out of control, Phil. I mean, this, there's no real science in this particular story. It's just kind of interesting. No, but it's a bit of... I, I want to say fun I, I, because obviously I'm, I'm a physicist, so I like smashing things into other things and seeing what happens. Uh, it does have the, the, the a smack of the, will our hero Elon Musk save the rocket from hitting the moon next week? Tune in to find out. And you're like, oh, oh I can't wait to see. But this is, it's born out of, uh, our, the rocket was originally and the booster was launched in Florida in February 2015. Actually, I don't know if you remember, the, the launch had been cancelled a few times with problems with weather, even though it was carrying a deep space climate observatory from NOAA. So it was to look at weather anyway. Um, so it was launched uh, and as it was uh, completing its long burn uh, and engines and sending the, the satellite into space to its Lagrange point, which is not where ZZ Top comes on in the satellite, but where actually the point in between two objects, you've got equal gravitational pulls. So it kind of sits basin. So it's kind of like its balance point. So the, the second stage became derelict. And, and at that kind of high point, it didn't have enough fuel to return to Earth's atmosphere, but it also lacked the energy to escape the gravitational pull of Earth and the moon together. So it was kind of stuck in that kind of space. And they were published papers and, and, and articles on this in Ars Technica. Um, and it's had a kind of a chaotic orbit since that February 2015. It's been flying around. Um, and they believe the rocket, which weighs about four metric tons, so it's four tons of space junk, uh, is on a course to intersect the moon at a velocity of about 2.58 kilometers a second in a matter of weeks, which is going to be... We've got no one on the moon right now, right? Well, hopefully not, apart from the secret bases on the dark side of the moon. But (laughs) the... the, uh, so Bill Gray, who writes software called Project Pluto, which tracks kind of these objects um, and, and asteroids and minus planets, has said that it is going to hit on the 4th of March on the dark side of the moon. It did a kind of a close flyby. On, oh, on so Earth. we won't get to see it? No. Well, we, this is the thing. We kind of will. So this is the first unintentional case of space junk hitting the moon. But NASA in 2009 did hit it. So they have two observe, uh, the, the reconnaissance observatory and the uh, Indians Chandrayaan-2 spacecraft is going to look at it to see what happens because we know about a lot of stuff hitting Earth but not a lot of stuff hitting the moon. So let's have a look at two things smashing together and it's going to be great. It, well, it could be a learning <laughs> opportunity in terms of crater formation. I don't know. Um, That's it, exactly it, what they're looking story, at. Yeah. Is it? Oh. Yes, precisely. Um, well done, Jane. Right. Uh, hey, uh, let's finish on a high note then. Um, uh, Phil Smith and Dr. Laura Duggan, thanks very much. 
All right, on the way, we'll be talking about a paper that could pave the way for a multiple sclerosis vaccine. This is Future Proof on News Talk. You're very welcome back to the programme. I'm Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to contact us here on the show, you can email us at scienceatnewstalk.com. Love to get your thoughts on this next story because I couldn't believe my ears two weeks ago when Dr. Susan Kelleher told me about a new paper that seemed to have discovered the primary cause of multiple sclerosis, a neurodegenerative disease that affects 9,000 people here in Ireland, 3 million people worldwide. And while people live often a fruitful life with MS, it is a devastating diagnosis to get and often uh, is diagnosed in early adult life from 20 years old to 40 years old. That's when uh, people mostly get this diagnosis of MS. This paper could pave the way for a vaccine. And that's why I was so really thrilled to hear about it. And to tell me more about what this means, Dr. Claire McCoy, senior lecturer in ICSI, joins me now. Claire, um, if you wouldn't mind, before we get into the the paper and and potentially the vaccine, just remind us exactly what is MS? Yeah, so multiple sclerosis MS is a chronic inflammatory disease that causes damage in the brain and spinal cord. So, and to date, this damage then causes like pain, fatigue, paralysis, immobility. So all those symptoms that really affect individuals with it. And to date, as you say, we have no single known cause for MS. And what we've always suspected with MS, that it's kind of a mixture of your genetic makeup, but also environmental factors. So you're right. This is a super exciting and compelling study, which suggests that Epstein-Barr virus, or EBV for short, is a leading cause of MS. What is Epstein-Barr? So Epstein-Barr virus, it's actually a human herpes virus. And what it does is it infects our B cells, which are a type of immune cell in our body, and it infects those B cells. And it can lay dormant in those B cells for your whole life, actually. And um, am I right in saying that this is a virus that lots of people get? It's it's like a common cold. Yeah, you're so right. So 95% of the world's population have been infected with EBV, with this virus, typically in early childhood and sometimes in adolescence. So that's a really important point, And I really want to make that strongly that not everyone who gets EBV will get MS. So it's still only a subset of individuals will get will develop MS. Yeah, um, and so sometimes that that makes it useless. But actually, what's really interesting about Epstein Barr is is that while it is a factor, it seems to be necessary for people to develop MS. Can you tell me a little bit about how we have come across this discovery? Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. So it's necessary, but not sufficient. So as we like to say, EBV appears to be the trigger. Or it's the spark that lights the fire, but it's not the entire cause. Um, So what they found was that this study is really, really novel and interesting because in order to prove that EBV causes MS, you have to find a cohort of individuals that don't have EBV, right, that they've never been infected. And then you have to show that those individuals that haven't been infected when they do get EBV that they're then going to go on and get MS. So how do you find a population? How do you find that cohort of individuals? Because as I said, nearly everyone in the world has been infected. So what these researchers did was they collaborated with the US military and the US military have access to 10 million individuals, typically young adults as well. 
And upon entry into the military, they take a blood sample and they take a blood sample every two years after that. And this study followed blood samples for 20 years from 1993 to 2013. And what the researchers did then was they kind of looked backwards of these 10 million individuals. They realized that 955 of them had MS and of them, only 35 were EBV negative when they entered the military. Which is is huge. Um, uh, this is work out of out of Harvard, as you say, collaborating yeah. with the United States um, military, because that, that point you made is really important. That it's very hard to find that number of people because MS is quite a rare disease in in many ways. It's hard to find a sort of um, naive population mm-hmm. um, th- that you can compare before and after. Exactly. Um, so this was just a sort of a correlation study right um but but this correlation is extremely strong well no it's not it's actually not a correlation study which is really interesting it's a proper data collection and this is why they're claiming that for the first time they've kind of proved that ebv is essential is necessary for developing ms and how they did that right was that they took these 35 individuals who were ebv negative they then traced them of course these individuals then did get ebv throughout their course of their life And after they had EBV, 7.5 years later, these individuals went on to develop MS. Okay. Now, obviously, they had control individuals who also got EBV and didn't get MS. And the difference there is that the individuals who did get MS seem to have a higher number of antibodies in their blood against EBV. And actually, the key finding from this research was that EBV gives you a 32-fold increased risk of developing MS. I'm right in saying that um, it is really rare to get data. So, I mean, it's it's black and white on this. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, absolutely. To put it into context, the original studies, when they were trying to find an association between cigarette smoking and lung cancer, individuals who smoked 25 cigarettes a day had a 25-fold increase in developing lung cancer. This is higher. So this is people who have EBV of 32 greater risk of getting MS. So, so part of me is really surprised because I have to say I've done this program for you know eleven years now, and we're always very cautious about you know the things that we say, and uh, we put caveats on almost everything. But I've been reading what scientists and science communicators have been uh, writing about this, journalists, and everybody seems to be on board with the idea that we have identified something that could rid the world of MS. So the next step, now that we know this virus that, that everybody tends to get it could be a primary trigger is the next step is obviously to look at a at a vaccine for this virus mm-hmm. how how likely is it that we can vaccinate against this this virus yeah it's wonderful so moderna who made the messenger rna vaccine for covid already have a vaccine for ebv in phase 1 clinical trials so i mean oh, it's just so exciting to see where that's going to lead also there's another atara biotherapeutics have a phase 2 clinical trial for an experimental therapeutic aimed to kill the b cells that produce the ebv antibodies so again another kind of angle to get at the same thing is this, I mean, I mean, I know now we're talking about, you know, years in the future, but do you think this will be a measles, mumps, rubella, MS sort of thing? Like, will it be a, a, a heel prick vaccine? Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I, you know what, I'd like to think so. I don't, I, you know, I can't answer that yet, yeah, but I yeah. would really like to think so. I mean, for the first time 
you know, we have something that cannot just be a therapeutic for MS, but could potentially prevent it. It's, it's huge. What does that mean for you, uh, uh, Claire? Because you've been studying MS for a long time. I know that uh, there is still so much to to explore and understand here. But when you see potentially the end of a, a disease that you're studying, what does that mean for you as a, a personal scientist? Uh, like it's just exciting like it's curiosity answered right and as well it's helping people you know it's the holy grail of what you do so it's super exciting but again as a scientist you put your scientist hat on and you're like but how how do individuals some individuals get MS and others don't how so actually there was a paper published in nature only last week showing that individuals who do go on to develop that have MS those antibodies against that we raised fight EBV actually can cross react with your brain cells that produce myelin. So that's interesting. And so that's where now I bet you there's going to be so much science and researchers getting on this, trying to understand, well, how, you know, how, how do these mm. antibodies cause damage? And, and myelin, of course, being that sort of um, sheath uh, that covers the, the nerves that is yeah, damaged that in MS and, yeah. and causes that sort of cross contamination of electrical signals. So, um, when we, we look at this particular virus and, and the fact that it has the potential to cause something like multiple sclerosis in the right conditions, or should I say the wrong conditions, is it possible that Epstein-Barr could be responsible for other conditions that aren't MS, but are related to these B cells? Like, are there other conditions that, that do affect the brain that aren't classified as, as MS? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Actually, there is, there seems to be an association between EBV and lupus. So there seems to be a strong correlation there. So um, I think there'll be a lot of research done now because B cells play such a prominent role in antibodies and autoimmune conditions that I think there'll be a lot of research done now on other autoimmune conditions. One of the things that I noticed um, covering the story and getting so excited about it was I was kind of looking over my shoulder quite a bit, right? Because I didn't see huge coverage of this discovery in the national media. I mean, it, it, it to me seems to be one of the biggest discoveries since we had antiretroviral we had retroviral drugs for HIV. I'm trying to think of a bigger medical discovery than this in the last 20 years. And I'm I'm, I'm wondering... Why, why has it not been, I mean, I, I've been saying it on Twitter, why is, not, why is this not being shouted from the rooftops? I think because there's always been, there always has been an association of EBV and MS. That's always been there. So, for example, MS patients have always been known to have higher levels of antibodies against EBV. You know, EBV has been found in the brain lesions of patients. So there's always been that association, but it's never been directly proven until this study. So I suppose from a scientist and clinician's point of view, they're like, well, yeah, we kind of knew that, but nobody was able to put a number on it. Nobody was able to prove it. Nobody was able to was able to show as conclusively as these guys did that you're EBV negative, you get EBV, you can go on to develop MS. What about those who are currently living with MS? Is, is it possible to somehow dampen down the activity of this virus? Would that have any effect on the course of people's MS right now? Yeah, so I think in people who have MS, really what's happening is that what they found in that nature study published last week was that 
B cells that are in the brain and the spinal cord are overproducing these EBV antibodies. So if there's a way to calm that down, if there's a way to kill those B cells that are infected with EBV, that would be a treatment for people who currently have MS. And that's what the Atara Biotherapeutics uh, Experimental Therapeutic are currently doing in their phase two trials. Actually, we didn't we didn't cover it at the moment. What, what is the, the the current treatment for MS like? Because th- there's two types of MS, right? There's um, uh, relapsing and recurring, um, which is a sort of a, a periodic um, yes. uh, a lapse, and then there is a progressive MS, which which can develop from that first one, but also can can just be, and which is just progressively gets worse. Isn't that right? Yes. Yeah. So, what sort of medical treatment is there available for those right now? So there's a lot of FDA-approved therapeutics for relapsing, remitting MS and progressive MS. Actually, there's only one for progressive MS. So there's a lot of research aimed at trying to, to solve that. But all of the therapeutics really act to dampen the immune system. So they either stop immune cells getting into the brain or spinal cord, or they can kill those B cells. So the most effective therapeutic for both relapsing, remitting and progressive Uh, MS is a therapeutic that kills B cells. And now potentially we know why, because those B cells are producing antibodies against EBV and cross-reacting with the myelin that's meant to protect us. Do you, uh, as a researcher, feel like you totally picked the right specialty to to be thinking about this? Because, I mean, it really is um, a great time to be studying uh, MS, right? Yeah, it's funny, right? I've, I've always loved the immune system. And so I chose MS to study really because of its high prevalence in Ireland. Like it's, you know, there's not one person in Ireland that doesn't know a family member, a neighbor, a friend who's affected by MS. And to me, that's hugely motivating. So I think you're right. It's exciting, but also there's still lots to discover. As a scientist, there's always lots to discover. So there's still more to know and find out. Mm. I, I remember doing the MS readathon every year as a kid in school, and then in my early teens, learning that my neighbour uh, had MS and and watching her decline. It was quite a quick decline for her, and she was a real vibrant, you know, sports person. And I do think of her a lot uh, because she looked after for me after me um, uh, uh, quite a lot in my youth. So it, it's such amazing news and, and brilliant to talk through it with you, Dr. Claire McCoy from the Royal College of Surgeons Ireland. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much. I'd love to hear from you if you're a family that has been affected by MS. What do you make of this news? You can email us science at newstalk.com. All right, on the way, could forgetting be a way of learning? Don't go anywhere. Love to get your thoughts on on that, particularly if you're a family who's been affected by MS. What do you make of this news? It is, as I say, so exciting. And I rarely get really excited about things because it's it's often, you know, um, being overblown by uh, PR companies or uh, or the media. But this is a huge deal. Love to hear your thoughts on it. Time to look back at some of your comments from last week. And um we were um, talking about the lack of uh, dinosaur fossils and Shane McKee says they're up north and standing as DUP and TUV candidates in the upcoming assembly election. <laughs> Very good, Shane. Thanks for that. Uh, and Geological Survey uh, are, um, have been in touch as well. There's a great explanation of Irish fossils by Mike Sims from the Ulster Museum. 
There's a reconstruction of the Valencia tetrapod and a piece of the trackway at the Down to Earth exhibition at National Museum Ireland Collins Barracks. I didn't know that. I'll check it out. Thank you for that. Uh, someone else says, I can't help but think what the world would look like if the human race wasn't here. We are the aliens. We are the invasive species that has upset everything ecological on this planet. And what's worse is we have the intelligence to know what to do to fix it. Um, yes, uh, but... Um, if you you know if you love nature and so on, it, it is important to realize we are a tiny slice of the uh, the entire um, pie that makes up history. We you know we've been um, on this planet for four billion years, give or take, um, and in that time, we we make up a tiny slice of life. And when humans, as they will, become extinct, nature will persist. There will be um, a avatar-like world in in the future at some point um we are just making tiny scratches on a giant rock and uh while it's perhaps not that comforting to realize what we're doing right now the earth will recover the earth will go back to being the earth just humans won't be here and i find that sometimes some somewhat reassuring um calm says hi jonathan long time listener of the show thanks very much for an informative but also interesting program Thanks very much, Colin. He says, I have a suggestion for a future interview. Many years ago, maybe 10 years, he did an interview with a scientist that was working in the area of life extension. Sorry, I can't be more accurate on the timeline. I can't remember his name. Pretty sure it was Aubrey de Grey. I think it was, but... Anyway, we'll continue. The interview was very interesting. He was basically saying that we've already seen significant new treatments just recently come on stream that would extend the human lifespan and that many more were in trials and we'd see significant advances in the next five to ten years. He was talking about treatments not of individual ailments, but rather of the aging process itself. I think it would be very interesting to hear from someone working in this area now. Has real progress been made? Obviously, we aren't all availing of some treatment that's adding 20 years to our lives, but are such treatments in human trials yet? Any about to be? If not, what has happened? Did previously hopeful treatments fail when it came to trials, or is it just taking longer than expected, or was it all just pie in the sky? Is this area still one of hope, or has any real progress been made, and what's the outlook for extending our healthy lifespan? Uh, looking online for such intru- interviews, all I see is Aubrey de Grey. Yeah. All he wants to talk about is the moral question of, is it a good idea or not to extend human lifespan. But I think how much progress we've made and how close we are to significant progress would be a much more interesting subject. I don't know who would be a suitable person to interview, but maybe we can, we can, we can, we can figure that out. Um, thanks for the brilliant show as always. I remember that point and I was really struck by it as well. Aubrey de Grey was saying, look, if we look at the last hundred years, we have added on a significant amount of time to the lifespan of a human being. Like in Ireland, your um, life expectancy was about 50 years in, uh, in 1900. Um, now, obviously, lots of people lived beyond that, but the life expectancy was only 50 years old, which is just extraordinary. Now, it included, um, you know, children dying and so on. That has increased significantly to around 70-something, not nearly 80 in 2021. Um, now, of course, it it, uh, it doesn't include um, the, the other things that are going on, the global warming, that that's not really counted in those numbers. But if you look at the timescale of 100 years, we have significantly added to that with inc- improvement in medicine, a quality of life, diet, exercise, and so on. And if we keep doing that, if we keep adding years to the life expectancy while we're still living, if a child is born today, the, the theory was if a child is born today, by the time that child reaches 100, we'll have added on another 20 years. And so it is theoretically possible that the first person to live to 
say 140 or 130 is alive today. Now, whether or not that's um, real or whether or not um, you would want to be living at that age is a totally different question. But there are lots of people looking at aging and aging well. Um, and we will um, speak with one of those in the next couple of weeks, uh, Colm. So um, we'll get back to you on on how we do that. But there are lots of different ways of approaching the problem of aging. Um, one is to look at telomeres, the sort of DNA that uh, ties up um, at this sort of it's sort of the the shoelace plastic um, that keeps our shoelace from unraveling. It's kind of the same as a telomere. If when our DNA starts to unravel, that's when we start to a age, and and that that age is 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 very damaging of our DNA. If we can find a way to keep a cap on that, we can we can do that. There's things looking at rejuvenation of blood. There's lots of really interesting studies in in uh, in in healthy aging. Um, so it is definitely something we'll cover, Colin. Thanks very much for for bringing it up. If you would like us to in- investigate something or cover something that you've always wanted to know about, do drop us an email, science at newstalk.com. You can also uh, find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. That's it from us on this week's program. Thanks to Aidan McKelvey, Simon Keane, uh, Steve Daunt and Jojo Cardozo on sound. We'll see you then. In the meantime, stay curious. Stay curious.